one of the things that I have often told my counselees is that if they only fight sin on one battlefront, they're going to be forever frustrated and uh, they're going to much less frequently have victories in their battles. Uh, we really have three enemies that we need to be battling at the same time. The first enemy, obviously, is our flesh. If we don't realize that we've got evil within that we need to oppose, we're going to be constantly blaming things outside of ourselves, like so many of the psychologies do. It was your upbringing, or it was your environment, or it was <coughs> something else. Some people say the devil made me do it. And uh, God's not going to let you get away with that excuse. He says in James, no, you were drawn away by your own lusts and were enticed. Now, there is an enticement that comes from outside, and that's our second enemy, uh, the devil. Uh, he has various names, Lucifer and Satan. And he heads up a massive army of demons numbering at least in the hundreds of millions, but more likely in the billions. And the reason I say it's more likely in the billions is that in the book of Revelation, it describes just one regiment of the entire army that was stationed at the river Euphrates, and it numbered 200 million demons. Uh, so I, I, I really think if you numbered all of the regiments, it would likely come in the, in the realm of, of billions of demons. And these demons are trained to defend their territory against the advances of the gospel. They're trained in how to harass and how to destroy everything that God stands for. They've been trained in how to appeal to your flesh. They've had 6,000 years of experience in uh, trying to oppose God and oppose uh, God's people. The third enemy that we need to be fighting against is called the world in the Bible, and you can think of this as being kind of a combination of culture and worldview. Uh, it's... Uh, thinking and doing and valuing things independently of God and independently of the Scripture. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that it's God's plan for His kingdom to invade every aspect of culture and worldview, take every thought into captivity to Him, so that First John says this old world is passing away and is being replaced by a new world. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so his new world, he's making all things new, is more and more replacing the old world through you. His invasion is making all things new. But let me just uh, read a little bit of a description for one, from one uh, scholar on how extensively this old world seems to creep into everything that's around us. He said, the world system extends its tentacles into all areas of human activity, studies, jobs, sports, even religious activities. Consciously or unconsciously, we are confronted with the world system through philosophy, art, music, technology, the mass media, etc. The world system penetrates all of our culture. And so you can think of this world that is our enemy as being a culture that's independent of Christ and thinking that's independent of Christ, values that are independent of Christ, or you can think of it another way. We've got a flesh within, but there's a whole bunch of fleshes out there, right? <laughs> and the conglomerate of all of those fleshes and the way in which they think 
pulls at our flesh and wants us to adopt their values, their ways of thinking, and their ways of doing. So those are the three, uh, three uh, enemies. Two weeks ago, we examined six faulty Christian uh, approaches to culture, really their worldviews, that absolutely will not be successful in opposing the world system. It cannot and uh, we, we talked about uh, escapism. We talked about the synthesis of the pagan ideas in the Bible. We looked at the two kingdoms, secular and sacred. Uh, we looked at uh, ignoring culture, liberalism, which adopts culture. I forget there's one more in there. And then we looked at uh, the, the biblical approach, which is conquering culture by God's grace, the lordship of Christ over every square inch of planet Earth. That is the approach that we need to take. It's a replacement of the old world with the new world. It's God's kingdom of heaven uh, replacing every thought, value, every principle of the world. It's a radical approach to culture that most Christians just think, that's just too radical. We've got to have a little bit of the world and a little bit of this. So those are the three enemies that we've got to approach. Now, it's very clear from this passage that I just read That Saul's heart is the primary source of the anger, the jealousy, the paranoia, and the hatred that that he has. It comes out of his heart. But there is a secondary source that's been producing this as well, and that is the kingdom of Satan. Take a look at verse 10. And it happened on the next day, the distressing spirit, and literally it's the evil spirit, from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, we've already seen this demon at work in Saul's life. And the first thing I want you to notice about these demons is that they can come and they can go. There were times when Saul appeared to be pretty emotionally stable, and uh, he was regretting the things that he did. Why in the world would I want to be killing David? And he apologizes to David. You can see this uh, with people. They'll do something with real aggression, then later they uh, they will regret it. But all the way back in chapter 16, this demon would come upon Saul and then would leave. Sometimes it was because of David's playing. Sometimes it was for other reasons. Maybe he just went to do something else uh, uh, within the kingdom. But uh, demons can come and go uh, from people. Don't think you've won the battle just because you've resisted Satan and you've gotten some relief. Even with Jesus, those demons, or Satan in that case, kept coming back, kept coming back. Luke 4.13 says, Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Demons don't give up. They keep coming after you over and over again. We've gone for months at a time with no demonic activity that we've been able to discern in our home. And all of a sudden, we sense there's demons that are giving us troubles in our home. And so we don't know why. Is it legal ground we've given? Is it because of our students? We're not really sure. But we resist the demonic and they're gone again. But don't naively think that uh, because you've got respite, you don't need to be on guard against the devil. They come, they go. The second thing I want you to notice is that God gave permission to this evil spirit to come upon Saul. Uh, The text is quite clear that this was an evil spirit from 
God. Now, some people are really troubled by that. They think, how can God in any way uh, be involved with what demons do? And yet God is sovereign over everything. Demons cannot do a single thing to you without his permissive will. And I think it's really important that we, that we understand that. Now, I want you to turn with me. This is such an important principle. We're going to look at a few passages. 1 Kings chapter 22 And this is a passage where we have the good king Jehoshaphat. There was a tremendous revival earlier in Jehoshaphat, but he started relaxing over time. And here he does an incredibly bad thing that America has done over the years. He got into an alliance with an unbeliever king. Now, this king was uh, in the northern tribes of Israel. It was Ahab, but he was an unbeliever. And God absolutely forbade any alliances uh, with, with unbelievers. Now, Jehoshaphat still values the Lord, and he wants uh, the God's guidance. And so uh, let's pick up at verse 5. Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. And that's Yahweh. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go up against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, they're using the name of God. But Jehoshaphat smells a rat. Uh, He thinks these guys really are not prophets of Yahweh. And uh, so he says in verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord? That's all capital letters, so that's Yahweh. A prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chana'ana, uh, made uh, horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now, listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encouraged the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And I'm convinced he said that with a mocking voice. Oh, yeah, right. You can go ahead. Go on up. That's what you want to hear from me, isn't it? Go on up. You'll prosper. And I think it had to be mocking because in the next verses, Ahab knows Micaiah is not being serious at all. It's kind of an odd thing. Verse 16. So the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you will tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. 
And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. So Micaiah, by inspiration, says God himself sent that demon to do this work. Uh, Now, that really upset the prophets. So verse 24 Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. Now this is a a situation that shows demons cannot do anything without God's permission if it in any way impacts the lives of believers. And that's an important principle to learn. Satan is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour, but he is on a chain and he can only legally go as far as God allows him to go, and as we'll see in the next point, as far as we allow him to go. Because even believers can give legal ground for Satan to mess around in their lives. I want you to turn next to Job chapter 1. And again, we're digging into this a little bit deeper because some people just really question Uh, this whole principle, Job chapter 1. And let's begin reading at um, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? And I love that phrase. God had put a protective hedge around that family where Satan could not get at him. He was totally protected from Satan. This is exactly the same thing that 1 John 5 and verse 8 says about believers. Uh, It starts off by saying that uh, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. In other words, he can do anything he wants with the unregenerate. But then he goes on to say, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Those of you who have been taking Greek with me in in Lincoln, uh, it's a present tense indicating ongoing sin. 
Doesn't mean you can't fall into sin, but if you're born of God, you're not going to persevere in sin. You're going to, yeah, maybe fall. You'll get up and try again, but you will repent. But it says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God guards himself and the wicked one does not touch him. So long as we guard ourselves, Satan cannot touch us. You may question what grounds that Job gave to Satan to be able to touch him. Uh, I believe it was his fear. If you take a look over at Job chapter 3 and uh, verse 5, you will see, um, well, here's what it says. For the thing, this is Job speaking, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. Job 1 says that he was not sinning outwardly. He was blameless outwardly, but inwardly there was this sin of fear, of dread. This is a great uh, kind of a fear, and it's a kind of fear that's incompatible with faith. And so he had given legal ground through that. Uh, We're getting ahead of ourselves. That's uh, point B. But back to Job 1, verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here is a situation where God sends Satan with permission to afflict Job. Uh, So it's speaking of as being the touch of God because God gave permission. It is part of his sovereignty, but it was in Satan's power that he was exercising against Job. Now in Job 2, we see that that Satan is not successful, so he asks God's permission to be able to afflict Job more. And let's pick up at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his uh, foot to the crown of his head. Now those two passages reinforce uh, the, the idea that it's possible for demons, uh, evil spirits, to be sent by God to afflict us. And there's New Testament passages. For somebody, here he says you can't take his life. Well, when a person's excommunicated, he's handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, Paul says, that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. But uh, let me give you another passage. It's Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, if you don't forgive a fellow Christian brother his trespasses, your heavenly Father will hand you over to the torturers. And that's a word, torturers, indicates demons. Let me just read the passage for you. It's the end of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Verses 34 through 35, he says, And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. He's Jesus was saying that God will send those evil spirits into your life to afflict you. You deserve it. If you're not going to have forgiveness, you deserve to be afflicted by those demons. Demons cannot afflict us without God's permission. 
but demons can be used as a tool of discipline in God's, uh, in God's hand. And I think we need to be aware of it. Uh, don't ever think, uh, you know, a Christian cannot be touched by a demon. 1 John 5, 8 says, if you're not persevering in sin, he can't touch you. You know, if you're guarding yourself, he can't touch you, but he can otherwise. Now, if you turn back to 1 Samuel 18, I want you to notice three more things about this demon or this evil spirit. Verse 10 says, the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied. Now, the text is quite clear that this demon caused him to prophesy. Very, very interesting. Uh, The next phrase implies that this had been happening for quite some time. As soon as Saul started prophesying, David gets the clue, okay, there's that demon again. He gets out his harp, he starts singing, he starts playing music. So David played music with his hand as at other times. And so the implication is that this involuntary prophesying uh, was one of the symptoms of this evil spirit being upon him. Didn't say he pretended to prophesy, he really did prophesy by the power of Satan. Here is the critical point. He was a professing believer. Uh, This is something a lot of people don't uh, take very seriously, but believers who give legal ground to Satan find that demons can imitate the graces of God. They bring counterfeits into their lives. See, Satan has uh, uh, the power to... To, to give people peace, to give people sort of a sense of love, all of these counterfeits he tries to do in imitation of God. Uh, just to give you some examples of uh, the power that Satan has, if you look in Exodus chapter 7, Moses is given power by God to do a miracle. He casts his rod on the ground, it turns into a snake. The magicians do exactly the same thing with their enchantments. It doesn't say they pretended to do it. God himself is the one speaking, and he's saying that they did it uh, by their enchantments. They turned their rods into snakes. Of course, Moses' snake eats all their snakes just to show that God's more powerful. But they had the power to turn water into blood. They had the power to bring frogs up on the land. Now, they couldn't do some of the later miracles or any of the later miracles because God was staying Satan's hand in terms of showing the limits that they have. But here's the point. Satan can have remarkable power. Don't follow a person simply because he can do some miracles. Matthew 24, verse 24, says that during the tribulation, whether you believe that's in the future or in the past as I do, during the tribulation there will be false Christs and false prophets. So these are professing believers. And it says who would be able to do Such great signs and wonders, those are miracles, that if it were possible, they would be able to deceive even the elect. Okay? The purpose of the false prophet of Revelation 13, 13, calling down fire from heaven, was to deceive God's people. 2 Thessalonians says that Satan constantly imitates God's work in order to deceive. And let me read that for you. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason god will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie why do i bring that up it's because there are a lot of christians 
who follow another Christian leader simply because that guy has done some miracle or he's prophesied or he speaks in tongues or something else supernatural that he has been able to do. I've known people go into Eastern Orthodoxy or into Roman Catholicism because they say, look at the miracles that were done in those places. Let me tell you something. Other pagan religions have miracles as well. You cannot go by that. You've only got one standard that's infallible, and that is the word of God. Well, Saul was a professing believer. In fact, some of the language about him earlier in his life is so remarkable. It talks about him being given a new heart. It sounds like regeneration. The spirit uh, indwelling him uh, that uh, many commentators say, you know, he must be regenerate uh, and uh, just be a, a backslidden Christian at this point. Well, I don't know. Uh, there's good arguments pro and, and con, uh, but the point is he was a professing believer. And it's important to realize that ever since the time of Adam and Eve, Satan has tried to counterfeit as closely as he can everything that God did. Adam and Eve were told by God to have animal sacrifices. So what does Satan do? Every religion in the world started having animal sacrifices. He built a temple. Well, Satan builds a temple. He had Israel be circumcised to distinguish them from the peoples. What does Satan immediately do? He tries to obliterate those distinctions, and he has all of the nations around Israel start to practice circumcision. God had people speak in tongues. Well, Satan immediately has people speak in tongues. He is a great imitator. And I've run across several manifestations of tongues that are clearly demonic in origin, and they lose that ability to speak in tongues as soon as the demons are dealt with. Most religions in the world have speaking in tongues. Uh, out in Ethiopia, when the witch doctors would uh, call upon Satan to possess them, they were able to speak in tongues, prophesy, do miracles. And so these kinds of scriptures here are recorded so that we'll be cautious, so that we will be careful. There is the true and there is the counterfeit. And it takes biblical discernment to know the difference. By the way, just one of the tests of uh, the, the gifts of God is that God always heightens our understanding. He does not bypass uh, our understanding. Uh, he's not irrational. Anyway, David was not fooled by this prophesying. Now, we're not told if the other advisors were fooled. It may be that they followed Saul. Hey, this guy's a prophet. Uh, I guess who are we to question what Saul is doing? Uh, we're really not told on that. But in any case, David is not fooled. From chapter 16 and on, he realizes Saul is being plagued by a demon. And he's been engaged in trying to resist that with spiritual warfare. Initially, uh, he had success, uh, but apparently this demon is so enraged at what David is doing that he motivates Saul to try to kill him. Now, David never denies that Saul is a, a believer. He never denies that he's the anointed of the Lord. All the way to his death, he calls him that. But he realizes this guy is being used by Satan. Now, the last thing I want you to notice is that the attempted murder and the paranoia are at least in part caused by this demon, or at least exacerbated by this demon. Anyone who has worked very much with demons knows that they can, they can manipulate people's emotions, even believers' emotions. They can deceive people intellectually. Now, you would think, since it's David... <laughs> who's getting the spear thrown at him, he'd be the one that would be fearful and paranoid. He's not. David knows how to handle his fears biblically. It is Saul who was paranoid and fearful. Look at verse 12. 
And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. You'd think he would have trusted David more than his psychophant followers. I mean, David is godly. David is loyal. Uh, David, you know, loves Saul. He has a servant's heart. He's not about to try to overthrow Saul. And yet demons can make people turn on their closest friends whom they love. In chapter 16, it says that Saul loved David greatly. Here he is turning on David. I've known people to have had a bad dream, a horrible dream about their spouse or about some other person that has absolutely poisoned them to that person. They've never stopped to evaluate the source of that dream. They just allowed their emotions to be poisoned because it was such a vivid dream uh, about that other person doing horrible things. Now, the person had not done them, and they knew it, but they still treated that person as if they had done those horrible things. And I'm convinced that at least some of those cases, the dreams were brought by demons. What they should have done as soon as they woke up from that dream is, is recognize the source, rebuke the demon, and uh, after praying, starting to say, Lord, I affirm the truth that I know. I'm not going to believe a lie. And beginning to thank God for the truth that was in that other person. Even Peter was influenced by a demon. Peter got angry at the Lord. That's a pretty bold thing to get angry with Jesus. But he got angry at the Lord. I think that's in part a manipulation of emotions. And he rebukes Jesus for saying that he was going to go to the cross. Jesus knew the source of that statement, and he looks straight at Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. I think he was seeing Satan using Peter to tempt him. That's Matthew 16, verse 23. Hosea speaks of demons leading people into harlotry. Okay, He says, a spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. Now, were they responsible for their own sins of going to the harlots? Absolutely, yes. It came from their flesh. But you see, demons were driving willing subjects. They wanted to do it, but they were still being driven in this direction by these demons. John 8, verse 44, Jesus told the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you want to do. Now, they were driven by these demons to oppose Christ, even though it was incredibly irrational what they were doing. It was just as irrational as what Saul was doing with David. So when you see irrational things happening around you, consider that the source may be demonic. A lot of people don't realize that, and they don't even know how to fight against Satan. They allow demons to run their household because... They are not recognizing the source of all of the conflicts that are tearing their family apart. They think their spouse is the enemy. When in reality, the enemy is a demonic spirit and uh, maybe he's using the spouse and using your reactions to the spouse. Okay, Satan can do that so easily. Many people struggle with temptations and never resist the tempter. I counseled one person who was a very godly person, actually, and he came to me unbelievably distressed. He says, I keep saying these blasphemies against God. And he told me some of the things, and boy, it was horrible things that he was saying to God. And he says, I hate it. I, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. So as I started questioning and asking what kinds of things were going on in his life, 
I came to realize, no, he didn't agree with any of those statements. He was resisting them at every point, but he kept thinking, I'm the one who was saying these blasphemies. He never stopped to to consider that the source may be demonic temptation that was going on. He didn't get liberty from his 24-7 course of blasphemies in his mind until he started fighting the right enemy, uh, fighting against Satan. And as soon as he started attacking demons with the weapons of spiritual warfare that God uh, brought, he found victory. And he's thinking, "Ah, why have I been struggling with this for so long? If only I had started working against Satan uh, long ago. And so let me give you another example. I've counseled people who have never once given in to homosexual temptations, but they have been tempted over and over and over again. And they, of course, are beating up on themselves. Satan will tempt you and then he'll beat up on you. What is wrong with you, you know, that you would even be thinking such things? And oh, they felt horrible. What is wrong with me that I have such temptations? They were fighting against their flesh, never giving in to the flesh, but they never realized these temptations were coming from demons. The moment they started engaging those demons, the temptations left. Uh, I've seen the same thing with bitterness, anger, fears, paranoias, other negative emotions. See, there are demons who specialize in tormenting God's people with those feelings. And unfortunately, Christians are ignorant of Satan's devices and they get so depressed, so discouraged until finally they, 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 they come for help and we give them the tools to, to resist Satan and they get instant victory. See, I was a pastor for a number of years in the other church before I realized some of this demonic attacks. I was fighting my flesh. Uh, one, uh, one area was especially anger uh, that I, I, I kept feeling rage coming up within me for the stupidest of things. There was really no reason for it. Using Jay Adams' counseling techniques, I was able to keep my flesh from giving into that for the most part. There were times where it was expressed outwardly. But when my brother John told me, look, we've had ancestral visitation to the second, third generation, and we cut that off, my brother got relief from it. I instantly got relief from it. So I'm saying you've got to be fighting on all three fronts at the same time. You can't just uh, be attacking uh, your, your flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That's what too many psychologists do. They see all of this bizarre thinking, bizarre values, bizarre behavior, and they're warring according to the flesh. But God, God, Paul says, we, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In the same book told the Corinthians, hey, you know why you guys are, are, are having so many temptations? Sexual temptations, anger, division, legalism, discord, lack of forgiveness, misuse of their spiritual gifts. He said, you're ignorant of Satan's devices. He said, you need to be forgiving. This is just one example. You need to be forgiving that brother, quote, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. So that's a good question to ask yourself. Are you ignorant of Satan's devices? If I came up to you and I said, um, 
you know, could you give me four or five of Satan's devices that I could be on guard against? Could you list them? Could you list what the spiritual weapons that you need to use against Satan uh, really should be? A lot of people have not the foggiest notion how to fight against Satan, which means they're continually struggling against sin, but they're not gaining the victory against sin. They're not fighting on all three fronts. One of the reasons that the session gave you that uh, book, what was it, Christmas before um, last, uh, volume one of William Grinnell's book, uh, The Christian in Complete Armor, is because we want you not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. So we'd encourage you, pick that up, read it, and then buy volumes two and three on your own and read those. And once you've read through those, you're not going to be ignorant of Satan's devices and you're going to have a boatload of resources knowing how to go after Satan yourself and being uh, on the offensive. A lot of different tools the Scripture gives. The Psalms that David wrote, powerful weapons, especially the imprecatory Psalms. Man, you preach God's, God's curses against those demons. Uh, wonderful Psalms that the church has completely ignored. Or meditation, memorization of Scripture. There's a number of tools that you can use. Now, the last passage I read, I think, is a good lead-in to point B. Paul called them to put off their sins, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Now, we started by saying that um, Satan cannot touch you if you guard yourself. But when you fail to treat sin seriously, you immediately give him legal ground to mess around in your life. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, just one example. He says, if you let the sun go down upon your wrath, over and over again. In other words, you're not dealing with it immediately. You're not dealing with it right away. He says, you could give Satan a foothold in your life. You could give him a foothold. Another scripture says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and it gives Satan legal ground to mess around with you. So if you've been living in rebellion against some authority, uh, the likelihood is you've probably got demons that you need to be uh, removing that legal ground from, cl taking cleansing from the blood of Christ and resisting. All the way back in chapter 10, verse 22, we see the legal ground that Saul gave to Satan. And in his case, one of the chief ones was fear. He was fearful of what people thought about him, which is a form of idolatry, isn't it? And yet he refused to confess that sin and he refused to war against that sin. If your flesh persists in a sin, does not repent of it, demons have the ability to exacerbate that sin. Uh, I was fearful, person like Saul was when I was growing up, and uh, I just excused it. I didn't want to do that. Oh, no, I can't do that because I'm a shy person. Uh, it was fear that kept me from doing what God wanted me to do, and by avoiding these situations that I was fearful of, things got worse. They didn't get better. They'll always get worse if you do not fight against them. It was not until I began fighting against my fears in a biblical fashion that I started gaining victory. Uh, so in chapter 15, verse 24, Saul told Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now you might think, oh, how sweet. Uh, Saul's humbled himself. This is a great confession. And you wonder, why is God being so hard-hearted that he doesn't take this confession? It's not a legitimate confession. First of all, uh, 
it's a forced confession because uh, he's not doing it voluntarily. Secondly, as soon as he is caught and confronted by Samuel, he lies and he excuses his sin. And it's only when it looks like he's going to be losing the kingdom that he makes this confession. And in this confession itself, you see still that fear of others and what they will think. And now fear of Samuel. He says, yeah, I've sinned, but it was because they made me do it. They made you do it. Aren't you the king? (laughs) What's with that? And so he's blaming others. And this happened long before demons afflicted him. This fear kept growing till finally we see Saul paralyzed with these demons in chapter 17. Other sins that were not confessed by him and put under the blood were lying, anger, harboring, resentment, and I mentioned rebellion already. They're all sins that guaranteed a launching pad for Satan into his life. And there finally came a point in chapter 16 where it was too late for Saul to resist the demons. They pretty much controlled the way he thought, the way he felt, and the way he acted any time that they were around. Now, I should hasten to say, believers cannot be possessed in the sense of being owned by Satan. But uh, Demons can gain more and more access and control in your life But at any time, you can resist them. You are not owned. You are not possessed by him. Uh, uh, Still, it's possible for people to be used even to tempt others, just like Peter tempted Christ through the influence of of a demon. I've already dealt with point C when I was discussing, A, that God can be the permissive source, so I'm not going to cover that again. I really should have put into your outline uh, one more point. just showing how the world was pulling and tugging at the heart uh, of Saul. You can see how he valued the way the world did things, and he used their methodologies, and and it was tugging on him. But we're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, We're going to move on to uh, Roman numeral 2. We're going to quickly look at the irrational nature of this paranoia. When you see things that just don't make sense, that are irrational, um you can suspect that there is demonic going on. In verse 11, this paranoia makes Saul willing to murder a good man. And you wonder, how could anybody do that? Surely he's not a Christian. If you fear what other people think of you enough, you can do exactly what Saul did. David did exactly that later on, didn't he? He killed Uriah the Hittite because he was scared to death of what people might find out. You'd be shocked if you knew how many evangelical Christians, when they get pregnant, are scared out of wedlock. They're scared, so scared to death of what others will think of them, they go and get an abortion. That is no different than what Saul did to David here. Okay, it was fear of man. A second irrational thing is that he's afraid of David. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David. Again in verse 15, therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. Isn't that amazing? Saul's so wise. I mean, David's so wise that he's afraid of him. Why? Because he ain't wise. Verse 29, and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. It's a growing fear. Do not excuse your sins like I did when I was growing up, especially my sin of fear, because they will just keep growing. You've got to see fear, jealousy, anger, bitterness, all of those things as deadly enemies that have to be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you're going to end up like Saul. 
Now, there are a lot of great strategies out there uh, that I can share with you from the Bible on how to deal with any of these uh, besetting sins that you might have. Uh, one little book that I would encourage you to get, just as a resource, is a tiny little book. It's, it's, it's about this, this big, 63 pages. It's called, um, it's by Jay Adams, Helps for Counselors. Uh, mini manual for Christian counsel. Great for parents, great for kids. Uh, for every, every different little sin, uh, uh, there is like a half page to a page and a half of uh, just a quick outline. It's very, very brief. It doesn't give you a lot of information. You'd have to get into his bigger books to get, to get that. But I think it's a great resource for you. Third irrational thing that I see here is that Saul wanted David out of his sight, even though David was valuable. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. Maybe he's hoping David will get killed in battle somewhere. Uh, we're not exactly sure. But any time you see things that just don't make sense, that are irrational, start praying against demons. Uh, some of the hatred for Christianity and the fears of Christians in our nation are absolutely irrational. They're irrational. A few years ago, a professor of psychology at the uh, University of uh, New York University, Dr. Paul Vitz, he began realizing the spiritual dynamics that were going on in some of these counseling situations. Uh, he heads up the Department of uh, Psychiatry or Psychology there, and he didn't have much of anything good to say about uh, psychology. Um, and uh, he's got another friend who calls it the religion of, uh, of humanism, uh, even though he teaches it. He's an expert in it. But what he did is he put together a committee to do a research project, and they got 60 textbooks that are used in most of the government public schools uh, across our nation in social studies and history. So 60 textbooks that they're examining, and they were absolutely astounded uh, to discover that virtually every reference to Christianity and its influence upon early America had been systematically removed. And in fact, there were uh, uh, situations that were reported on specifically Christian types of things that were made into secular uh, things. And this uh, removal was so crass, so deliberate, in some cases so irrational and puzzling that the committee said that uh, the people who wrote these textbooks must be incredibly fearful of Christianity. Actually, they didn't use the word fearful. They said they must be paranoid of Christians. Well, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of paranoia against Christianity that you see in America. You can see it in Hollywood. I don't know how many of you got the email. Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it was just sent in our family, but uh, read an email of this uh, Christian. She came out of the closet finally in Hollywood, very popular actress, and all she said initially was, I'm a Republican. Her friends instantly became her enemies. She was treated just with absolutely horrible treatment to the point where she told her daughter, don't say anything. <laughs> don't even say you're related to me, <laughs> you know, uh, over there. Liberals can talk about their views, but the conservatives could not. And uh, one Christian wore a small cross around her neck one day, and her manager, Bernstein, said, you're going to have to lose that, honey. In this town, you can't be religious and you can't be conservative. And she said he was a star-making manager, but I couldn't sign on with him. Fear, paranoia, 
antagonism to Christians. You can see it in the media, you can see it in the schools, you can see it in so many areas of public life in America. And a lot of Christians say, why do they hate us? We're so nice. (laughs) All you have to look is Saul and David. David was so nice too. But you see, the demons that were behind Saul hated David. And that what they were doing is they were poisoning Saul's attitudes toward David and, and making him paranoid, making him think that David was out to get him. It absolutely was not true. But he could not shake those negative attitudes toward David anyway. Even David's wisdom was seen as a threat rather than an asset. Verse 15, Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The culture wars in America will not be won by wisdom alone. In fact, the more arguments you win, probably the more they're going to hate you. Even here at UNO, they do not have a free market of ideas on all kinds of issues. For certain, they don't have a free market of ideas on creationism. They shut that right out. They are not allowed to speak about it. Just go up uh, in the science department and read what they say about creationism. Scared to death, I think, uh, of touching that. Feminist department, you look at other... There's not a free market of ideas. Think of the pro-life movement. I think that the pro-lifers have won the argument intellectually with resounding success. No question about it. So what do a lot of pro-lifers, pro-abortion people now do? Okay, so abortion is killing a human being. That's uh, we We don't care. The rights of the mother to get an abortion trump the life of a child. They're that blatant. And it's almost breathtaking uh, the way in which evil uh, can be held onto even when every rational argument to hold on to that evil has been completely removed. See, it's ultimately a spiritual battle. That's why Paul said we're not ultimately fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against demonic hosts forces of darkness. And if you don't take that battlefront on, head on, you are not going to be successful. We as a church, I think, need to be much more serious about spiritual warfare in our culture wars, in our church wars, in our family wars. We've got to realize if we don't take on Satan, we're going to be battling nonstop for the rest of our lives and being frustrated. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's important to note uh, three responses of David to Saul's behavior. First of all, David did not give in to fear. Saul was very fearful, paranoid, out to get him. He did not respond in kind, but that's what many Christians have done. They see the paranoia, the attacks, the antagonism toward Christianity. They see the conspiracies that are out there, and what's their immediate response? Being scared to death, you know? We don't have a chance against them. David did not take that approach. He did not allow Saul's paranoia to make him crawl into a hole with his Y2K supplies and say, we're just going to survive in here. No, he went out there to influence and to conquer because that's the reformed way to do it, right? You conquer culture. Now, did that make him more vulnerable? Of course it did. He could easily get killed if you get out there and get involved. But that was his passion advance the cause of King Jesus and God gave him success. He could go out there and say, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to to advance your cause, leave the results in your hands. And here are the results in verses 15 through 16. He says, all Israel and Judah love David 
because he went out and came in before them. Second, David had already learned how to engage in spiritual warfare all the way back in chapter 16. He'd already written psalms that could give him, make him stable emotionally and and help him spiritually. Psalm 23, a lot of people think that was already written by this time. Psalm 144, and then he was going to continue writing psalms, especially the imprecatory psalms that were nuclear weapons. Did you realize that most of the imprecatory psalms were written against Saul and then later on his son Absalom? He loved both men. He wished and hoped and prayed, no doubt, that both men would repent. But he realized, I've got to oppose this spiritual evil. And so he prayed those psalms against him. You see, there's two ways God can answer a curse from God. That's an imprecation, which is what those psalms call for. He can take the person out, praise God, that gives peace to the church. He can save that person where Christ bears the curse, praise God, the church has peace. But when, when people bemoan the fact that the enemies of the church are persecuting the church and they're not willing to pray those imprecatory psalms, I say, you deserve to get persecuted. God's given you tools that you need to use. And I can't believe it. You know, in China, it's, it's taken many times hours to convince people finally that they can use these psalms. And once they do, they begin seeing some pretty phenomenal stuff uh, happening uh, on, on their behalf. The third thing that David did was to walk in God's presence. Verse 12 says, the Lord was with him. Verse 14 says, the Lord was with him. When you're living with people who hate you or jealous of you, want to undo you, you have got to know communion, deep communion with God. Psalm 23 is one of those tools that enabled him to develop that deep communion. Psalm 144 that we've already looked at. And uh, through his spirit, in his presence, we have fullness of joy. Through his spirit, we have faith, we have hope, we have all of the tools that we need to resist. So if you've not learned how to have intimacy with God, you need to develop that. I sent out, oh, I don't know, last year or something like that, uh, 20-some exercises on how to help your children to get in the place where God can bless you with that sense of his intimacy, as John says. Learning to love Him and receiving of His love, where He manifests Himself and His power to you. Very, very, very important. Press into God in this area. Now, in conclusion portion of your outline, I've given a baker's dozen of uh, promises as to why you don't need to fear Satan. Now, we've got, got some stuff that might make you nervous that we've talked about. Really, if you're guarding yourself, you don't need to fear a thing from Satan, not a thing at all. Very, very encouraging. If God is for us, who can be against us? And um, I think these are promises that can make you realize I can bank on the promise of 1 John 5, uh, 8. Let me just read these uh, without any comment. I've given three scriptures that say that Satan was bound at the cross. That's phenomenal. 2 Thessalonians says that Satan's power has been restricted and restrained. Hebrews 2 says he's been rendered powerless over believer. That's encouraging. Rendered powerless. Uh, Colossians 2, together with Mark 3, show that he's defeated, disarmed, spoiled. Christ saw Satan fallen from heaven, thrown out of the place where he used to accuse the brethren. Now, to me, that's so encouraging because that's exactly what he was doing with Job. He was in heaven, able to slander the brethren. But after the ascension of Christ, he was kicked out of heaven. He can no longer slander you, brothers and sisters, before the Father. 
Um, other scriptures indicate that Jesus has inherited all nations, will wrest them out of Satan's hands. Satan was crushed under the feet of the early church as Rome came to the gospel. And he can crush Satan under your feet as well. Satan has lost authority over believers, according to Colossians 1.13. Now, the other scriptures in your outline there indicate that his works have been destroyed. He must flee when resisted. All demonic hordes are subject to the authority of ordinary Christians. Demons are progressively being removed from the earth. And that even though there's going to be a final hurrah, where they're going to make one last attempt at God's people, it's going to be short-lived, and uh, God's going to judge them and bind them forever uh, in the pit. So you've got nothing to fear from demons, if you take away the legal ground you've already given to him, you cling to God's grace, you pick up the weapons of your warfare. And again, if you don't know how to do that, read the book I've given you, The Christian in Complete Armor. Now, let me urge you as well to pray for one another and to pray for your elders. Your elders get used and bruised and abused like David did. And I think they need your prayers. And I want to read you a true story told by a fellow uh, pastor. This minister, quote, was traveling recently by plane. He noticed that the man sitting two seats over was summing through some little cards and moving his lips. The man looked professional with his goatee and graying brown hair, and Steve placed him at 50-something, guessing the man was a fellow believer. Steve leaned over to engage him in conversation. Looks to me like you're memorizing something, he said. No, actually, I was praying, the man said. Steve introduced himself. I believe in prayer too, he said. Well, I have a specific assignment, said the man with the goatee. What's that? Steve asked. I'm praying for the downfall of Christian pastors. I would certainly fit into that category, Steve said. Is my name on the list? Not on my list, the man replied. That's about as overt an attack as you could get. But, you know, even the subtle, non-overt attacks are no less destructive. So pray for us and may the Lord give you success in your battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. Thank you for the warnings that it provides us. Thank you for the guidance that it gives to us. May we take heed to it. May we not fear, but by faith, may we take on the world, the flesh, and the devil. I pray for this congregation, Lord. I pray for your anointing to be upon them. I pray against the demonic strategies uh, to divide and to conquer families. I pray, Father, that your uh, uh, protection would be here, that your wisdom would be here, that each one from the youngest to the oldest would uh, not use carnal weapons, but would use the, the weapons you have provided in your scriptures, which are mighty for the tearing down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be more and more done in our lives. Take away, Father, the inconsistencies of our views of culture. Take away the inconsistencies of our worldview, the things that we value. Uh, help us, Father, to hate the world and the things in the world, uh, knowing that this world is passing away. Uh, but we want to be part of that world which will endure forever. And so, Father, I pray that uh, you would rebuke uh, the, the evil one, 
and all of his demonic hosts, I put the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this congregation, and I ask that uh, uh, your protection would be with us, that you would send your holy angels as ministering spirits to minister to those who are heirs of salvation with their flaming sword. They would break off all demonic attachments, that they would enable us to enter into the peace, the shalom that you have intended for us. And if there is any demonic presence that is because of discipline, may your discipline produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness so that we could the sooner enter into uh, the provisions of your protection, that hedge that you love to put around your families. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.